Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. When I started recording Reading Our Times in 2020, I vowed to myself that I wouldn't invite authors back onto the show. Everyone I'd spoken to had written a fascinating book, and everyone was in their own right a fascinating thinker. But there are so many books in the world still to read, and so many authors still to discover, so I had to be tough. Well, the best laid plans... In an example of the sheer strength of my iron will, I am this week talking again to Ian McGilchrist. But, I plead, there is a good reason for this. I spoke to Ian in the first series of Reading Our Times about his book, The Master and His Emissary, a huge and hugely praised book on the divided brain and the making of the modern world. He mentioned then that he was following it up with a book that I, like many people, were already looking forward to. In truth, there aren't many books that could put the 600 dense pages of The Master and His Emissary in the shade, but his new one can. The Matter with Things is even longer and even wider ranging. It builds on its predecessor and puts forward an astonishingly deep, profound and comprehensive vision of reality. In Ian's own words, a whole philosophy, new answers to the questions of what the world is and who we are. In short, I couldn't not talk about it on the podcast. Ian, welcome back to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much, Nick, and it's a great pleasure to be with you again. We should, I think, begin by rehearsing the argument from the master and his emissary. So can you tell us briefly why the brain is divided, what that division means for the way we engage in the world and how you think it shapes the world in which we live? In brief, there seems to be a necessity for all creatures that we know to be able to pay two kinds of attention to the world at once. I say all creatures that we know because uh, insects, nematode, worms, and even the most ancient neural network known going back 700 million years in a sea anemone called Nematostella vectensis, they're already asymmetrical. And this seems to be because creatures have to solve a conundrum in order to stay alive. They have to be able to target something, food, or something to manipulate in order to build shelter or whatever it may be in the world, And for that, they require highly focused, very precise, but narrow beam attention to a detail. If, however, they are not to become somebody else's lunch while they're getting their own, they need to have the precisely opposite kind of attention going at the same time. That is to say, a broad, sustained, vigilant attention to everything else that is going on. And the only way to resolve this seems to be to be able to pay two types of attention to the world with two different aspects of the neural net. And in the human, these are the left and right hemispheres, 
And going all the way down through not just apes, but mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and even into insects, we can see there are differences between these. And characteristically, the left hemisphere gives the narrow beam highly targeted attention to a detail in order to manipulate the world, but not to understand it. And the right hemisphere gives the broad outlook for everything else that exists, be it predators or conspecifics, or whatever else it is that one requires to be aware of at the same time. And it therefore helps us to understand the big picture. That's broadly it. The differences in attention give rise to very different kinds of world. The attention is what brings the experienced world into being. And if you pay a different kind of attention, you get a different kind of world coming to meet that attention. And what we don't attend to, we don't experience at all. So the differences, broadly speaking, then, turn out to be something like this, that the left hemisphere produces a world of atomistic fragments, little bits that have been focused on, that it has to somehow work out how to connect them. They are relatively certain, fixed, immobile, familiar, general, abstract, disembodied, and inanimate, and the right hemisphere is the opposite of this. It's something in which nothing is ever certain, nothing is ever completely isolated from everything else, nothing is fixed and static, but always in motion and always flowing and changing, where what is is not just an abstraction taken out of context, but something embedded in and embodied in a context, which makes a huge difference to what it is. If you wanted to sum it up very, very briefly, the left hemisphere's world is like a map and the right hemisphere's world is the world that is mapped. Hmm. That's very nice and very succinct. Thank you. Now, The Matter with Things, your new book. First of all, is it fair to call it a follow-up to The Master and His Emissary? Well, it is and it isn't. Initially, it was going to be an attempt to put what I'd put at great length in The Master and His Emissary more briefly because people said the ideas in this book are of extraordinary importance, but they're in a long book and a lot of people don't have the time for that. I quickly lost interest in the project because there is really nothing in it for me to have taken pains to say something subtly and with proper caveats and then to be involved in making it crude. So that's what I didn't do. <laughs> but in the meantime, I've been thinking much more about the philosophical consequences of the thesis of the master in his emissary. Because if I'm right that there are two ways of looking at the world, this affects everything. Mm. And I mean, literally everything. So what I wanted to do was to talk more in general about the way we completely misunderstand the nature of the world. We've been fed an image of it as a mindless, pointless, senseless mechanism, which is best understood by reducing it to its parts. Yeah. Well, first of all, I argue that the parts are really a mental construct. They're a useful way of dividing up what one finds. But it's just as true that you understand the whole by seeing what parts go to make it up as you do to understand the parts by seeing what sort of holes they go mm. to make. And I also have a strong belief that seeing the world as a mechanism is fully to understand it. It's to turn an inherently complex and unpredictable system into a simple predictable system 
It's to lose most of its important qualities, its direction, its sense of values. It's to reduce consciousness, which simply cannot be done, to matter, and so on and so forth. So the book is, in a way, my best attempt to rebuff the reductionist materialist paradigm and to substitute something, I think, more sophisticated, subtler, and more fruitful. And what's nice about it, from my point of view, is that it draws on neurology, philosophy, and physics. If you look at these three ways of coming at some idea of the world, they start, if you like, from different points entirely on the circumference of a sphere. But as you pursue them towards the centre, they come very much to the same conclusions. And what is even more interesting is that these are very much in line with ancient wisdom, both of East and West. Well, let's walk through the book, or really run, because it's a substantial book, and sadly we only have half an hour or so together. But let's go through it. Um, there are three parts, and the first focuses on what you call portals, or means of access, ways of discovering truth. Now, this is quite a subtle point, isn't it? So can you tell me what you're specifically aiming for in part one? What I was looking at in part one is how we get information about the world and make sense of it at all. Science, reason and so on work on all this later, so that's part two. But what are they, the basic ways in which we get some idea of the world? They're through things like attention, perception, the judgments based on perception, um, the ways in which we use our emotional and social intelligence, our cognitive intelligence, and our creativity in putting together a picture. And all those faculties I look at, and one or two others, and look at the ways in which the right and the left hemisphere contribute to them. It's a pity to do this, but I can summarise it fairly briefly. Uh, the material is fascinating because it's specific cases, often of people with right hemisphere damage, showing what an extraordinary thing the world becomes for them and how very different from the world that we inhabit. This doesn't happen so much with the damage to the left hemisphere, where the main problems are using language and using the right hand, but the world is recognisably the same mm. world. It makes sense in the same way. And people with left hemisphere strokes, despite losing language and the use of the right hand, are easier to rehabilitate than people who have right hemisphere damage because it puts them completely out of touch with reality. So that's really what I look at in the first part. And I show that in every case, the right hemisphere is superior at bringing us information about the world and making sense of it. You might say, well, that's very odd. I mean, that doesn't sound right to me at all. You must be putting your finger in the scales here. What I probably ought to say rather briefly is that over time, the left hemisphere has become less and less an organ designed to help us understand the world and more and more a place in which the creature can go offline and speculate about a possible plan, some kind of a theory. And so in general, its theories about the world tend to trump experience, whereas the right hemisphere has been charged with being the one that keeps us in touch with reality. Let me just press you on one point, though, about these portals. If we were to be joined in this conversation by an empiricist, they would say, well, hang on a second, we gain information about the world through our perception of the world. That's it. So how do you respond to that more narrow view that actually there's only one way of accessing information about the world? 
Oh, good heavens. Uh, <laughs> by the way, um, I don't like the word empiricist there because I see myself as an empiricist. I think the right hemisphere is the one that's actually saying, so let's have a look at what's really actually there right. rather than let's look at a theory we found about what might be there. What you perceive is enormously dependent on how you attend. That would be the first thing I point out, mm. make that attention is foundational and that things we don't attend to, we tend not to perceive. And depending on the nature of the attention we pay, we perceive something different. Then, of course, perceptions are not free of judgments. We go to meet the world. We don't, we're not just sort of a blank slate, as it were. We bring to our perceptions assumptions, expectations, and so forth. And when we make perceptions, we are already making judgments. We discriminate what a perception is by making a judgment about it at a very, very early stage. So perception is only the very beginnings of it. And different kinds of attention and different kinds of intelligence, for example, our emotional and social intelligence, if we, if we don't bring those to bear on our perceptions, we don't understand what we're perceiving. This is enormously obvious in cases of people who have right hemisphere stroke. Yes. And one of the things that I just ought to chuck in is that good old-fashioned cognitive intelligence, fluid intelligence, GF, is mainly based on the right hemisphere, not on the left. The right hemisphere is a more important contributor to straight up and down traditional concepts of intelligence as well as those of emotional and social intelligence. Mm. It's also, of course, as I argue in the book, more important for creativity and for bringing our imagination to bear on the world. And once again, perceptions are not clean of creativity and imagination. One other quick point before we leave part one, just picking up on what you said earlier about how the right hemisphere is actually more important when it comes to cognitive intelligence. There's a simple error that people often fall into here, which is the left hemisphere does some things and the right hemisphere does other things. And that emphatically isn't the case, is it? It isn't the case in two important respects. One is that they both are involved in everything, which is why the pop psychology idea that, you know, reason is in the left hemisphere and painting pictures in the right and, and so on, this is wrong. Mm. Both of them contribute to everything, as I constantly say every time I speak about <laughs> this subject. But the difference is in how. It's in the mode, the howness, not the whatness of what they do. And the howness is in each case entirely consistent. So it has the qualities that I outlined at the beginning of this talk in the left hemisphere and the qualities that I outlined at the beginning of this talk in the right hemisphere and that these colour the way in which it engages with everything, with language, with reason, with all these things that both of them engage in. The second way in which the idea is mistaken is that we believe that if there are two, then we just shrug our shoulders and go, well, there are two, aren't there? They're of equal importance. They are not of equal importance. No two things are ever of equal importance in the entire cosmos. Mm. It's just a, a trick of the mind that makes us think that if there are two, they must be equal or symmetrical. Well, the, the, first of all, the brain isn't itself symmetrical. There's a clue. And the mind is not symmetrical yes. either. The two hemispheres are not of symmetrical importance. So part two, you move on to territory that was most famously occupied by Pontius Pilate and asking, you know, <laughs> what is truth? What do we mean by truth and how do we access it? <laughs> yes. uh, there have been, as you alluded to, many, many attempts to question truth over the last 40 years or so, which often come to the conclusion that, well, there is no such thing as truth. And they tend to cluster under the label of postmodernism. That isn't where you're going, isn't it? That is not where I'm going. 
The two volumes of this book have subtitles. The first one is The Ways to Truth, which doesn't suggest that we necessarily achieve it, but at least there are paths we can follow towards it, more reliable than others. And the second part is a question, what then is true? That's the second volume, mm. which contains part three of the book. And that is a question, it's not an answer. So built into this idea is the distinction I make between what I call truth as correctness and truth as unconcealing. The first is the idea of truth as a thing that is somewhere out there and we can follow logical steps in a straight line towards it and eventually we will achieve it if we follow them for long enough and assiduously enough. Whereas a truth as unconcealing is the idea of a process which is also one of clearing away rather than of asserting. So clearing away falsehood, in essence a via negativa or apophatic path to truth, which is actually the one that science itself takes. Mm. Science never asserts this is true. Science just says we think we can exclude this for the time mm. being, at least on the basis of the assumptions we've made at this point in time. Mm. You mentioned at one point that these kind of conversations might be easier if we had them in German. Um, <laughs> yes. in, in, in as far as... Very much so. <laughs> yeah, we could distinguish between different words there are in German for knowing. Yes. Unpack what you mean by that. Okay, well, it's a peculiarity of the English language that we have the same word for different kinds of knowing. And I think that many of the problems of the Anglo-American analytic tradition could be, in one sense, put down to this problem. In German, there is a distinction between kennen and wissen, and for French speakers it is the same distinction between connaître and savoir. The first is knowledge by experience, the other is knowledge of a fact, as it were. So, for example, I know Paris because I spent several months there when I was young living in Paris. I got to know it, <laughs> or started the process of knowing it, but mm. I know that Paris is the capital of France, and that's a different kind of information altogether. So these are different kinds of knowledge, and that distinction is a very important one because Often we think that the very reduced idea of a few facts substitutes for knowledge. And if you think about a human person, you can immediately see that knowing somebody is five foot four, has red hair and blue eyes, is a witty talker and of a kind disposition, doesn't give you anything like the feel of your best friend who actually answers to this description. You'd actually have to meet her in order to yes. um, get any idea of who she was. I wonder if this also maps onto the distinction that the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber once drew between I, it, and I, thou, that there are two ways of uh, engaging with reality. You engage with reality as it, in a first and third person type of relationship. And then there's the I, thou, and you always, or rather you always should, engage with other persons as thous, because if you don't, you end up fundamentally dehumanising them. Is mm. that a reasonable correlation? Yes, I mean, it's not the same distinction, but it's a parallel one. Yes, I would accept that. In fact, in The Master and His Emissary, I argued that denotative language arose when communities became, or civilizations became so large that you couldn't any longer address people directly and started to have designs on things that weren't actually present. But as long as you are dealing in small groups with people that you are familiar with and are face-to-face -face with, then denotative language, what we think of as language in the modern sense, was possible not necessary but that's a long argument yes 
I wonder also, as another aside, a philosopher that I know both of us admire greatly, Ludwig Wittgenstein, I wonder whether mm. there's a parallel here as well between his early and late philosophy. His early philosophy, which one interpretation at least sees itself as the culmination of Anglo-American analytic philosophy, which solves all the problems, realises 10 or so years later that actually it solves nothing. And he arrives at a conclusion that actually language can only be understood within the broader context of forms of life. Is that a, a similar parallel to what you're talking about? Well, it is, although I know why you make the distinction between Wittgenstein of the Tractatus and Wittgenstein of the Philosophical Investigations, because they do seem to me to be, in the one case, a more left-hemisphere approach, and the second, a much more right-hemisphere approach. But, of course, his conclusions in the Tractatus are to undermine that left-hemisphere way of thinking. So what he was doing was using a left-hemisphere technique against the left hemisphere's dominion, which is in some ways what people say I did in The Master and His Emissary and have done in this book, which is to use a great mm. deal of rigorous science and logical argument, bringing together these things to show the limitations of science, wonderfully valuable as it is, and the limitations of reason, enormously important and indispensable as it may be too. I feel I'm the person who is defending science and defending reason in an age in which they're both under attack in a very worrying way. But I'm also saying, as you always must, that they have their limitations and it's not good for them to be considered to be absolute answers to everything any more than it is to dismiss them. Well, let's move on to the third part of the book. In the third part, you look outwards and ask what this means about the nature of the cosmos and, and ourselves as its inhabitants. Yes. You look at the building blocks of the cosmos, time, space, motion, matter, consciousness, values, purpose and God, which is quite a, quite a, a list. <laughs> Sadly, of course, we can only really focus on one and naturally I, I want to talk about God. Or as you very cautiously term it, the existence or otherwise of what we refer to as God. Yes. Um, now, tell me, that is deliberately a circumlocutious language for a reason, isn't it? Tell me why. Well, of course, in virtually every tradition that I know of, the idea of naming whatever we mean by God is considered dangerous and is advised against. In Taoism, famously, the first words of the Tao Te Ching are the Tao that can be named is not the real Tao. Mm. And St. Augustine said, si comprehendis non est Deus, if you understand it, it's not God you understand. Once you use a name, you are at risk of thinking you have captured something, you've pinned it down, you've got it. What one must always be doing is trying to step behind language, step behind the idea of something that can in any sense be grasped, because if it were grasped, you would have grasped not God, but an idol. Mm. So one has to be very careful in talking about it. The chapter is itself a short book. It's about 112 pages long. <laughs> and it cost me more grief than anything I've ever written, because it seemed to me that it was of ultimate importance and indeed I argue it is the question of ultimate importance but it is also the one that is almost impossible to address in a way that doesn't travesty what it is one's talking about. Mm. I do take great pains to try to do this 
I talk about what I call the sense of the sacred because to some extent I want to sidestep the unpleasant associations in many readers' minds that the word God immediately summons up. And I want to arrive at an idea of a God. I want to defer that moment until I've explained what it is that we're striving for. Mm. And I suggest there is something that is that is divine, that is loving in nature, that is powerfully creative, and that it is the meaning and, if you like, the business of our life to get to know this better. Mm. In Rowan Williams' book, published a couple of years ago, called The Age of Words, his final chapter is on silence and yes. how, in its own way, silence is the only way we can authentically relate to these kind of questions. But as you rightly say, you're caught in a bit of a bind because silence is an appropriate response and a necessary response. But at the same time, you do want to talk about this. You do want to yes. engage with it. That's right. How do you go about that? I mean, you say at one point the difficulty is not in finding the right words. The difficulty lies in there being no right words. So, yes. so where do you begin? Well, I think it's perfectly okay to aspire not, of course, to have said the last word or even the first word on this topic, but to have tried and to have eliminated by failing. That sounds like a rather low aspiration, but it may be the only aspiration one can have. And I think that the process does reveal things. What I do do is look at how the right hemisphere might begin to approach this problem and how the left hemisphere approaches it. And I suggest the left hemisphere can contribute, but that unfortunately when it tries to be the master, the one that thinks it knows, it leads to two twin travesties. One is fundamentalist religion and the other is fundamentalist atheism. Mm -hmm. And I suggest that they have many of the very same qualities about them and that we, what we are aiming for is something which is the obverse of, of both of these. It doesn't lie in the middle between them. It is something that is, if you like, exactly what both these positions are missing. Yes. You quote the philosopher Jonathan Ray at one point to the effect that yes. um, if there are religious truths, they are more like truths of love than truths of science. They depend on facts that will not come to pass unless we go halfway to meet them, which rather suggests that if you're going to arrive at or attempt to arrive at these truths, they are irreducibly experiential. They're personal in the truest sense of that word. That's absolutely right. There has to be a going to meet something, which is not a blind going to meet something. I, I stress this, that it's like fording a stream, that uh, somebody stretches out a hand, which you're not touching, but you know the hand is there, and you step onto mm. the stone and take the hand and this is how you cross but you can't cross without as it were taking that hand and Hegel actually says something remarkably succinct for Hegel that you can't learn how to swim while sitting on the bank and studying in a textbook how to do it before getting into the water you have to get into the water <laughs> and what I'm not suggesting is that you you sell out on your critical faculties or you stop being reasonable but it is also unreasonable to suppose that certain things can be contacted only by using your reason. There are many yes. things that are powerfully important, very, very real, and are not irrational, but are simply supra-rational or trans-rational, um, starting with the love that I hope 
my listeners have experienced in their lives for another or other human beings, but also, I mean, something as straightforward and wonderful as Schubert's C major quintet. It's not irrational. It's simply not accessible purely by reason. It has to be experienced. And when it is, it is powerful and very, very real. And it is speaking to us. So that really is a better analogy. Reading what you had to write about music reminded me of a line from the novelist Nick Hornby, of all people. He wrote a book many years ago about music that really moved him. And at one point he said, I try not to believe in God, of course, (laughs) but sometimes things happen in music, Mm. in songs that bring me up short and make me do a double take. I think he's hit the nail on the head there, hasn't he? Yes, I think for most people in a, in a not very religious uh, age, the way in which we contact this sense of the transcendent, of the numinous, of the awe-inspiring of the sacred is in art, particularly, I would say, in music, but also in poetry. For me, very much in poetry too. These two things, more, I'm afraid, than the visual arts, though I love them, and architecture and so forth, but poetry and music, for me are the inalienable conduits of whatever it is that one means by the divine. Let's end by returning to the present and the concrete because much as the book is a really extraordinary tour de force of questions of mind and brain and ideas and and philosophy, I strongly sense it's driven by a very concrete and very down-to-earth fear that we're getting things very wrong. And you say at one point in your epilogue, nature has become mere resource, the divine mere suspicion, and the unruly complexity of life can, we believe, simply be rationalised, ironed out, and subjected to our conscious control by technology, by bureaucracy, and where necessary, by law. What do you want readers of the book to walk away with? How do you want them to think or act differently? I certainly don't want to prescribe in any detail how they should think or act, but what I want to do is cause a shift of heart and mind, to use a bit of a cliche, but I do think that both of those are important elements in what I'm talking about. What I want is for them to go away having seen a landscape that I have depicted that is beautiful, having walked with me along the ridges, the hills, looked into the valleys and seen something that is a world that is at one and the same time not the world we now live in, and yet a world that is not in any sense alien, but actually one that they recognise. They don't have to cognise it because they already recognise it. So what I want to do is to allow people to rediscover something very powerful of which they have an intuitive understanding, which is richer, more complex and more alive than the world in which we live. One of the things I'd like to just emphasize is the sense of devitalization in modernity. It seems that the vitality has been administered out of existence and that we now live in a, not just a a desacralized world, but a devitalized world. And that we need to recover our sense of being living human beings again in a world that is also alive, one that is responsive to us and to which we have a duty to respond faithfully. The book is called The Matter with Things. Ian Gilchrist, thank you very much again for speaking to Reading Our Times. It's been a great pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Helen Joyce about her book, Trans, 
when ideology meets reality. If we don't radically accept our embodiment and understand it as not a constraint on our humanity, but as actually central to our humanity, then we are going to leave out nearly everybody and really harm people by not addressing their needs and their humanity. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>